We have two scriptures today. I apologize. They won't be on the screen in their entirety. There was some issues trying to format them in. Um, we, for lack of better words, had to kind of crunch together to get everything done. Uh, so we, I, we did our best to kind of get everything going. So I apologize that the scriptures won't be on the screen. I promise I'll read them slowly so that if you're just listening, uh, you can follow along. And if you do have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to them. If you have uh, a device that would have it on there, feel free to turn to that as well so that you can follow along. So our first scripture is the uh, follow-up to the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, verses 10 to 23. And it says this, The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but didn't see it, and hear what you hear, but didn't hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of the world and this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. May God add his blessing to his word. We'll save the second scripture for the, uh, when we come to it in the message today, just to break it up a little bit, especially because the words aren't on the screen, it might help us remember a little bit better. So, this morning I want to talk to us about understanding the impossible. Right? We have different approaches to this, and we'll touch on that a little bit, but one of the things that I kind of thought about at the, the beginning of this was the sun. And there are people sitting in this room that will understand this better than I do or already have an understanding. And there are some people who maybe will hear some of these things for the first time. But I don't understand how the sun works. So if you don't know, it kind of burns itself as fuel. And I'm looking at some of the engineers in the room and they might already be yelling at me that that's not right. But you get the idea if you understand where I'm coming from. It essentially burns hydrogen and it's made out of hydrogen. And there's some crazy cycle going on that as the hydrogen is burned, it gives off helium, and then the helium goes out into the sun's, out of the sun's range and then kind of turns back into hydrogen. It's crazy. And, and the other part of it is somehow the sun doesn't burn itself out. 
Like, despite being made of hydrogen and burning hydrogen, why hasn't it just, like, exploded? Right? Gene was with me on that one. And apparently, once again, bear with me, because I don't claim to have my head wrapped around this, the core of the sun, as it heats up, as it burns hydrogen, and it heats up, if you know things about thermodynamics, when something heats up, it's less dense. Right? So as the sun burns really hot, the hydrogen atoms spread out more and more so that it doesn't just turn into a raging inferno. It is, but it's controlled. And then when it gets hot and the hydrogen expands, what it does is it slows down the fueling process because the hydrogen isn't so concentrated in the middle. And then it re achieves, I'm reading this, hydrostatic equilibrium. Yeah, some people said, okay. Some people like Bill are like, yeah, of course. Duh, why wouldn't it? Makes perfect sense, right? But it's amazing because for, for some of us, including me, for the most part, the sun is that thing in the sky that looks about this big that somehow, despite it being 94 million miles away, I can still feel it. That's crazy, right? We, when we learn about the size of the sun, when we learn about the enormous amount of energy that it gives off, when we realize that if, if it's all correct, that the gravity of the sun keeps our planet in, in orbit, right? Just mind-blowing stuff. And even what I attempted to put together here in this paragraph and present to you is far from the full scope of what the sun can offer, what the sun, how the sun works and, and how all this kind of comes together. I, I barely got the tip of the iceberg of how the sun works. I'm sure Bill could come up here and give a much better uh, explanation than I even tried. But some of us hear these things and it clicks with us. Some of us are kind of understanding. For some of us, I may have just been speaking in gibberish. And that's okay, right? Because we all kind of have different ways of understanding things and our brains work differently. And we have, some of us tend to be more creative and more, what is that, uh, right, brain, right brain oriented and some of us are more left brain oriented, the numbers and factual. And that's okay because we all are, are made differently. We all learn differently and we all kind of have different ways of grasping things, right? For some of us, the sun is just what we wish would show up once in a while in December. For some of us, you know, the sun is annoying in July, or for some of us, we've actually studied thermodynamics to have an understanding of the words that just came out of my mouth. But what's interesting, my wife in her physics class at UB in college had a fairly young professor, and they sat down one of the first days of class and started to break down the parts of an atom, proton, positive charge, neutron, no charge, electron, negative charge. And one of the students gets the boldness to ask the professor, why are protons positively charged and why are electrons negatively charged? And this man, who likely has a doctorate in physics, gives the answer because God designed it that way. Because at some point, our understanding, no matter how in-depth we've studied something, it's like we run out of real estate, right? We can understand things to a certain point with our limited brains, even the, the smartest people in the world. I just saw an article on Facebook that scientists have discovered something in space that they've never seen before, and they thought it might be a black hole, but it's too small to be a black hole. Like, we're still learning as a society, as humans, as individuals, as a culture, we are far from having everything figured out. So I want to uh, dive into our, our first scripture that we read here. You've probably heard the parable of the sower many times, and maybe you understand full well what Jesus is talking about when he mentions the farmer scattering the seeds. It's important to note that this sermon, this message, this parable, would have been given to people who had an understanding of farming. That's why he chose to, to talk about 
a farmer sowing seeds because the people that he was talking to would understand how seeds grow. It would make sense to them that seeds that fall in good soil would grow and succeed and produce fruit. It would make sense to them that seeds that were scattered on the path would get stepped on or eaten by the birds and wouldn't grow. So Jesus uses this approach with this group of people, but does it seem like they understood it? Right? It's like telling, telling if my, I told my three-year-old the story of the boy who cried wolf. She might understand that it was wrong for him to cry wolf when there really wasn't a wolf. And then when there was a wolf, no one believed him. But I don't know that my three-and-a-half-year-old would understand that the story has a principle that's telling you not to tell lies. That, that comes with a little bit more wisdom and understanding. Right? I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in sixth grade. I did not connect that the story of Aslan gets in line with Jesus. I was a dumb 11-year-old who didn't, didn't get it. Right? And I was coming to church at the time. I just didn't make the connection because that comes with wisdom later on when you learn that C.S. Lewis was a Christian and this is an interpretation on the gospel, right? So things come with time. And it, I think it's, it's definitely safe to say that the crowd would not have really understood what the parable was teaching because did the disciples understand what the parable was teaching? It was very often that after a parable was taught, the disciples would ask him to explain it. Because they didn't understand what point he was getting to. Like, wow, that was a great story. What does it mean? That was, you're a great storyteller, Jesus, but I have no idea what you're trying to teach us. Right? So the, the question is interesting. Why do you teach people in parables? Why not just come out and tell them that if they hear the word of God and listen and it changes their life, it's like a seed planted in good soil. Why not just tell people? Right? And Jesus goes into an explanation and he quotes Isaiah. Right? Some people will have the eyes to see what they're meant to see. And some people will have the ears to hear what they're meant to hear. Right? And he, he tells the disciples, you guys are blessed. Because when you see things and you hear things, you understand what's going on. And this is me just trying to interpret. The disciples are like, yeah, what's going on? Because they clearly haven't grasped it. Right? It's almost rare when a disciple gets something right. Like when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? It's a rarity when Peter says, you're the son of God. And Jesus goes, you're right, keep that to yourself. Right? But the disciples very often swung and missed on a guess of, what, of who Jesus was and what he was trying to do. And that's okay. Like there's some irony here that as Jesus is saying to them, some people will hear it and understand, some won't. And it seems like the disciples fall somewhere in the middle ground. Like they know they're working with a powerful man. They know they're working with who might be the Messiah. But they don't always catch what he's throwing when he's teaching them something. Why does Jesus take the time to explain the parable to them? Is a real question. Why does Jesus take the time? Why doesn't he just say, you know what, if you guys had your ears open, you would have heard it? That's right. Thank you, Kathy. We, we hear time and time again when the disciples, something is revealed to them. Who reveals it to them? The Holy Spirit. God reveals to them something that they didn't understand before. It's like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? And Jesus shows up and they don't recognize him. And he preaches everything from Moses all the way up to the, the gospel. And when he disappears, it says they understood who it was. And they all of a sudden understood everything that Jesus had been teaching them along the way. It's an epiphany. For some of us, we've all had them. We've all had the aha moments. The light bulb flickered or it came on. 
or it fizzled out right afterward. I've been there. But we've all had those moments where something clicks. Sometimes it's, it's like Michael Scott. Why don't you explain this to me like I'm five? Sometimes we catch on right away. Sometimes we hear something and it makes sense and we, we grab it right away and, and we run with it. But God reveals to us things so that we might understand them. But do we fully understand God? Does anyone fully understand God? No, because God is bigger, too big to understand. Like, everything about God is bigger than we can wrap our heads around. So we try. We try to figure it out. We listen to sermons. We, we study ourselves. We read books. We read the Bible. But God is huge. And every attribute of God is, is expressed in a way that is bigger and better and more vast than we can wrap our head around. So we might look at the parable of the sower and say, well, yeah, duh, that makes perfect sense, right? I can't believe the disciples didn't understand that, or I can't believe people didn't get that he was trying to explain to them good soil, bad soil. But there's another parable that I want to read, and we'll read it now, that maybe will help us understand less. Well, what I mean is when we read this parable, we might not be able to wrap our head around it as well, or we might not understand as well. This is Matthew 20, 1 through 16. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them, pay them a denarius for the day and sent them in his vineyard to work. At about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day and doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired at about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who came, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do that with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? The last shall be first, and the first will be last. I think we understand this parable, so we'll, we'll talk with the literal part first and then we'll kind of interpret it. So the, the landowner goes into the town square looking for workers for the day. This is a fairly common practice and he goes up to people, this is probably 6 a.m. or so, and he says, I will hire you to work for me for one day and I will pay you a denarius, which is a generous wage. So this is probably more than they would make for a day's work normally. So it's a generous salary. This is not minimum wage. This is more than would have been expected to be paid. So of course they jump at the opportunity for a day's honest work and to make a, a, a decent amount of money. 
So they go running in, and then it says in the third hour, so 9 a.m., he goes back and finds more workers, and he says to them, I'll pay you a fair wage. He doesn't say how much. Looking for work, they're excited at the opportunity to go work a, a day for this man. So they follow him back and start working in the vineyard. He does the same thing at noon and 3, right, the, the 6th and the ninth hour. And he continues to hire people and says, I'll pay you a fair day's wages. And then in the 11th hour, 5 p.m.-ish, he goes and he finds the people who couldn't find work all day. And he says, come work in my vineyard and I'll pay you a fair wage. So if you stop right there, you would assume that the people who worked all day got a denarius. The people who worked half the day would get half as much. That's still fair. Like if someone offers you 500 bucks for a day's worth of work and someone works a half day and they make 250, you've both been generously compensated for the amount of work you've done. That's how our brains work, the fairness, the, the math, that all makes sense, that all works out. So the day ends, and the landowner says to the foreman, gather them up. And I just picture them all kind of lining up in front of them. And he calls up the people who worked the least amount of time, the 11th hour, and he hands them a denarius. The people who worked all day are not upset yet. They might even be excited. Well, if they're getting a denarius, what are we going to get because we've worked for 12 hours? And then he goes down the line, and he pays the people who worked for nine hours, and he pays the people who worked for six hours, and he paid the people who worked for three hours, in reverse, sorry. And then he pays the people who worked for 12 hours. And he gives them a denarius, and they're upset. We worked all day. He said, I am not treating you unfairly. When I came to you 12 hours ago, I said, would you like to work in my vineyard for the day in exchange for a denarius? I'm not ripping you off. Still giving you your 500 bucks for the day. Still paying you what we agreed upon. Why do you care what I'm paying other people? Are you just jealous or do you like not, do I have not have the right to do with my money what I want to do? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. The people sitting in this room might struggle with this idea because we might feel like we were the first ones on the ship working towards being a disciple. We've spent our whole lives following Jesus Worshiping him, learning about him, praying, donating our money, our time, our energy. And we give our entire life to follow Jesus. And the reward at the end is incredibly generous, eternal life. And then there's the people who spend their whole lives cursing God. And on their deathbed or a few days before or the last year of their life come to know Jesus. And guess what? Their reward is an eternity in heaven saved from their sin. What's funny is, if we're the last ones, we like that deal. But when we're the first ones, we might struggle to understand it. So when it comes to this parable, I'm not talking about understanding the teaching point. I'm talking about understanding how God works. Because we might not understand that. Right? It's beautiful. We don't understand his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness because we don't deserve it. We know we're sinners. We know that we can't save ourselves. We know that it took the Son of God dying on the cross for our sins to save us. We can't understand that because it's bigger than us. It's an amazing love story. But then we struggle to understand why someone who is different than us or meaner than us or not a Christian as long as us gets the same treatment. Maybe you don't. I give you credit. If you can just accept that someone who accepts Christ on their deathbed gets to go to heaven just as much as we do. They don't go to a different heaven, right? Maybe you struggle with this idea. And if you do, I will promise you that you're not alone because there's one person in the room who would struggle with that, that I can guarantee you would struggle with that. 
But I also don't think we fully understand why God would do this. Because we don't understand how much God loves them as much as us. We don't understand that God operates with love for humanity that is different than we love each other. So we look at the scope of God. Things like creation. Blows my mind when I think about God knitting us together in our mother's womb and carving out the Grand Canyon. When I think about God giving me dark hair that's getting a little lighter on the sides and brown eyes and that he created the universe and planets that we've never discovered and that weird black hole thing that NASA can't quite figure out what it is, right? When we think about his immense love for us, that while we were still sinners, he loves us. That, that from the time he... From the beginning of eternity, he thought about us and he loved us. When we think about him willing to send his son to earth as if that wasn't enough, not only does he love us so much that he sends his son to earth, but he sends his son to die. Right? It's getting, the scope is getting bigger and bigger. The, the, the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, that that changed everything. Jesus, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, I won't say nothing has changed, but things certainly aren't what they are now. The scope of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, but then three days later, raising from the dead, is bigger and larger and more powerful than anyone can put their heads around. The idea of salvation, that despite being sinners who are broken and have nothing to offer God that compares to what He gives us, He longs to spend an eternity with us. He longs for relationship with us now and forevermore. These things are not easy to understand. It goes back to the sun and the thermodynamics. It goes back to things that we can't wrap our head around when it comes to science, math, right? Speaking of math, you guys know about pi, the number? 3.14, right? We know that. It's going to be another teaching moment that some of you might not want to hear. But pi is our best attempt to have a, a number, albeit irrational. Is pi an irrational number or is it rational? I don't know. But it's an attempt to be able to draw a perfect circle. So in order to have a number that represents a perfect circle, it's not 3.14. It's 3.14592653588. And it keeps going and going and going and going. And no matter how many numbers we get to, is that going to make a perfect circle? No. It essentially places dots in a line that is curved to 360 degrees, but it never would be a perfect circle because math operates with lines in the way that that, anyways, points and lines. It's really hard to rationalize something, but we try. Some mathematician somewhere right now is sitting at a desk maybe trying to figure out the perfect number for pi. At some point, someone sat down and, and took a whole lot of paper or scrolls or papyrus or stone tablets and tried to figure out a number that would work for drawing a circle. Just because something is too big for us to understand doesn't mean we don't darn well try. Right? And this is one of the examples of trying to understand the impossible is this number that we use to draw a circle on a calculator or to plug into a printer or whatever that's going to make a circle for us. Any of you ever been to the CN Tower? It has that glass floor, right? 
and the glass that they use is over two inches thick. It's, it's exactly six centimeters because, you know, metric system. But it's over two inches thick, almost two and a half inches thick. And the glass, the way that it's designed, can hold five times more than it would need to to be safe. So it's well designed, right? This glass is thick enough that it can hold five times the amount of weight that could possibly stand on it and it would still be safe. So when you go to the CN Tower, you can walk out on the glass floor or not. And there's kind of three approaches that I have to the CN Tower and our faith, and I'll parallel them. So the first one is a childlike faith. I've seen videos on Facebook of a baby crawling on the glass. Is the baby scared? No, why not? doesn't know. The baby doesn't know that that, is, that, that ground is 1,500 feet down, and the baby doesn't know that the glass is two and a half inches thick and it's safe enough to go on. They have a childlike faith. They're able to just accept that nothing bad is going to happen. Sometimes that's not a good thing, but hey, you know what? My parents are here, or this building has been built, and they're just able to accept that it's okay. Some of us don't even think about the scope of how, how big God is. We don't try to box God up. We don't try to understand everything about God. We just follow him because it's safe. Like, I, I, I don't need all the research. I don't need all the apologetics. I don't need all the timelines and the Bible memorized and every parable understood and every word of Scripture, but I'm going to follow God just because I love him and he loves me and that's all I need to know, and that's the, the childlike faith. It's, it's faith almost without question. There are pros and cons to it. The pros, that you have this innocent faith that isn't deterred by hang-ups. Your brain doesn't force your heart in a different direction. But there are cons too, because with that, there's times that you might not deepen your faith. Right? You might not think that you need to read the scriptures, and I'm not accusing anybody of this. I'm just going to weigh out the pros and cons of each of them. If you have a childlike faith and you've agreed to just trust God, you might think your faith is complete. Right? I've got it all. I don't need to know anymore. I trust God. I love him. He loves me. Good. Right? And then we risk not investing in our faith to go further up and deeper into our relationship with God. Some people have been or still deal with some skepticism. This is the people who either do or don't walk on the floor, but if they do, they're super nervous. Like These are the people walking on the glass floor kind of doing one of these as if somehow if they walk slower, it's not going to break underneath their feet. And you can find videos of like people being super scared on the floor and like their friend coming up to them and like jumping and scaring the heck out of them because even though logically they know it's safe, even though they're not watching people fall through the floor every time they look, even though they're walking on it, even though they've done it before, they're still skeptical. They're just not 100% sure. Because they're not 100% sure, they might not even quite step on the glass, or if they do, they want to be careful. Does their knowledge, or lack thereof, or their skepticism, change anything about the safety of that glass? Does it make it more safe because they're cautious? Does it make it less safe because they're nervous? Does any skepticism about attributes of God make him less of God? Is he any more of God because people study about him more? Is he less of God because people have their doubts? 
No. The pros of skepticism, hopefully, it leads to further investigation. Right? It's almost like doubting Thomas when he asks the question. What that does is it almost solidifies his faith that it was shaky before because he was skeptical, but once he gets to put his hands in the, the holes in his wrists and in his side, Thomas is never going to doubt again, maybe, hopefully. So if you're sitting here and you have doubts about how God works, about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, about belief, whatever that might be, as long as it is spurring you in a holy direction, it's not a bad thing, in my opinion. Right? As long as it, as long as it encourages us to learn more and study more and go deeper, it can be a good thing. It's like walking on the glass but being nervous, right? At least you're, you're, doing, you're getting the experience of it, and then hopefully the more you do it, the less nervous you become. Right, the con, though, that it can, the only thing being restricted by skepticism is us. Any doubts or skepticism that we have affects us, like we said, not God. It only stands in the way of us and God, us getting closer to God. Right, there's a, there's a story that um, there's a, a man trying to get to the other side of the lake because there's a, there's a party over there, and all of his friends are heading that way, but the ice is pretty thin, so he kind of nervously walks across, real careful. He's like laying down to spread out his weight because he knows that's how you don't crack the ice, right? And all of a sudden, he hears this thunderous noise, and he feels the ice shaking underneath him, and it's a horse-drawn carriage getting ripped across the top of this frozen lake. And he's nervous because he doesn't want the horse-drawn carriage to break the ice, and the horse-drawn carriage gets to the other side on the party, to the party. We can get there either way. We can be scared the whole time and we can spread out our weight so that we don't crack the ice and be nervous. And, or we can just say, you know what? I'm going headlong. I'm just going to go for this thing. They both made it to the other side. The skeptic just didn't enjoy it as much. right? Then there's the scholar. This is the person that's Googled everything. This is the person that can tell you how tall the CN Tower was, who the designer was, where the glass was made, what the glass is made out of, the finest silica sand, whatever, how, what temperature they melted it down to, and how thick the glass is. And they're the person that's standing on the glass like, you know, this is two and a half inches thick, and it's safe, and it, there could be 20 people standing on it, and it wouldn't break. Because they, they enjoy knowing how things work. And for some of us, that's not who we are. When I go back to the example of the sun, some people don't care how the sun works. It's great. It's burning, keeps us alive grows the plants, gives me a nice tan, good to go. Some people want to know everything about it. Right? They walk on the glass because they know it's safe. Not because they assume it's safe, not because of a childlike faith, because they have done their homework. They do their best to understand as much about it before, during, and after the experience. I'm this way with roller coasters. Like, I love riding them. Last summer, Rick and I went to Cedar Point. We rode a bunch of new roller coasters. And I literally watch YouTube videos of how the coasters were fabricated, how they were made, how the launch system works, how the brake system works, and how I'm a nerd when it comes to that stuff. So I love that when I get off a roller coaster, I can say to Rick, who just rolls his eyes at me, hey, there's a magnetic braking system on that thing, right? But that some people like to be the scholars. We like to research. We like to know. We like to study. And the pros is that it almost causes a never-ending thirst for knowledge because we know there's always more to know about God. We know that before, during, and after today, we can always find out more about the kingdom of God and about who he is. 
So we read books, and we study, and we read our Bible, and we go to Bible studies, and we listen to sermons, right? Because knowledge, unlike before when we said we don't want our heart and our brain to go the other way, for some people, when there's knowledge, their heart aligns with their brain. Their brain backs up what their heart believes because they've learned about God and they love God, and then those things can get in line with one another. So some people tend to operate that way. The cons, though, is that this can affect your faith in a negative way because you are trying to make something concrete that is spiritual. Right? I know a guy who, who took a job studying the Bible for a college university, and he said in doing so, he fell out of love with Jesus Christ because it became his job every day to learn as much as he could about the Bible. And he seemed to forget that he needed to love Jesus in the midst of that. Right? If we become too scholarly, we forget things like love and grace and forgiveness. We tend to think more very X's and O's, very concrete, very physical. And our faith is not a concrete, physical thing. It's a spiritual and emotional experience. No matter where we find ourselves on this spectrum, we can, you can be one, two, and three. Right? I don't, I'm not pigeonholing anybody into one of these spots. I hope we realize that we'll never fully understand God. We'll never get why he does what he does or why he doesn't do what he doesn't do sometimes. But that we also, maybe after hearing this today, will realize that's okay. Because there are 40-something of us in this room right now and we're all in the same boat. No matter how long we've been at this, whether we work for a church, whether we've attended church for a long time, whether this is our first time ever here, whether we can recite the Roman road, whether we can recite the Lord's Prayer, no matter where we are, we're on the journey still. I hope none of this discourages you. I hope that we're not discouraged by this. I hope instead that it inspires us for how, of how awesome God is. That we stand in awe of a God who is bigger than we can wrap our head around. That we stand in awe of a God that loves us in a way that words can't express. A God who longs for salvation with us so much so that he sent his son to die. A God that is so powerful that death couldn't hold him down. God fully knows and understands us. And I am grateful that we don't have to fully know and understand him in order to have relationship. Right? So in the name of Jesus Christ, be blessed. Let me pray. Almighty God, we know that what we have to offer, what we know about you, what we give you pales in comparison to the smallest things that you give us. I'm grateful that you are more powerful than we can understand because it proves that you really are God. I'm grateful that you love us more than we could ever love you back because our love isn't perfect and you give us an idea of what perfect love looks like. I cannot thank you enough for sending your son. Jesus, I can't thank you enough for willingly dying for my sins because I can't repay you for that. I'm grateful that despite our limited brain capacities, our limited understanding, our broken hearts, our sinful lives, that you are not unobtainable. There's no super high bar up there that we've got to be able to clear in order to get into the club. You cleared it for us. And the sooner that we realize and accept who you are and what you've done for us, albeit with a childlike faith or a bit of skepticism that always sends us chasing harder after you, or we're the scholar who sits down and studies and learns more about you and desires to be a better Christian tomorrow than we are today, and we read about it and we study and we learn. No matter where we are on that spectrum, 
I pray that this idea, this concept, would be a blessing. That we would be blessed by the idea that despite you being bigger than we could ever understand, you are personal enough to desire and allow us to have relationship with you. That is good news. So God, wherever we stand, wherever we are today, I hope that we've been spurred in a holy direction. As a group and as individuals, I pray that we would be nudged a little bit closer to you because of what we've done this morning and the time that we've spent this morning in your word in this discussion. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two things to go home with today. One, uh, you know the, the kids who are gifted in school and their grades are really bad because they haven't been challenged enough? This curriculum is the most challenging there is and you're never going to have it all figured out. So that's a good thing. We always are challenged to learn more. Secondly, I encourage you to cautiously pray for God to reveal more to you. Because we agree that God reveals to us things over time. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that touches us and reveals more about His character, His love, His salvation, the gospel, His word to us. So dangerously pray that prayer that God would reveal more to you today that you might know more now than you did yesterday. In the name of Jesus Christ, go in peace. Amen.